Um, I retired in the middle of June, and I hadn't preached for eight months until the very end of February. I preached again and found out, okay, I can still do that. Um, it's actually good to have that, uh, that time away from pulpit ministry, and it was also wonderful to uh, be able to prepare that sermon that I, that I preached uh, free of all the other pastoral loads and the things that are going on in the church that Vince and the elders and many of you know about. They're, they're always right there while you're preparing, and I didn't have any of that, and I found that to be uh, uh, clarifying and good, and I think I realized at that moment that I really am retired. So... <laughs> It is good to be with you today, and uh, I want to begin now just by reading uh, from my scripture passage, uh, which is from John 11. John 11, I'm beginning in verse 9. Uh, Jesus has recently raised Lazarus uh, from the dead, and uh, this, where I begin, uh, leads up to what we know as uh, Palm Sunday. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast that Jesus was on, that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. This is God's word to us. This morning we're going to look at the three voices of Palm Sunday that we find in the passage which I just read. But before we do that, I want to tell you about a principle that underlies this passage and underlies many passages in the four Gospels that we have. And, and the principle is this, that we, we rarely understand what God is doing in the moment that he's doing it. In fact, it's really not necessary, and usually it's not possible for us to understand all the purposes of God in the moments of our lives as they unfold. How many times do we read in John's Gospel and others that the disciples were clueless as to what Jesus was teaching or what he meant by what he said or what he did? I think we are sometimes holding the disciples to a higher standard than ourselves. That, oh, well, they should have known. Those dumb disciples, why didn't they listen or why didn't they pay attention, but they're really just like us. We don't understand those things in the moment. Peter, at the Last Supper in John's account, in chapter 13, verse 7, he has his feet washed, and, 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 and Peter was objecting, and Jesus replied, you don't realize now, Peter, what I am doing, but later you will understand. Today in our passage, This is Palm Sunday. The crowds are shouting out praise as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this procession that is winding down the Mount of Olives into the valley and and ready to process up to uh, the gates of Jerusalem itself. And we read in verse 16 that they did not realize. uh, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So think about it. The ones closest to Jesus didn't even completely... I mean, Palm Sunday was an amazing day. We'll say more about that. But even his closest associates didn't fully understand what was happening that day. They didn't understand the Last Supper. And the full significance of the cup and the bread. Peter doesn't understand the washing of his feet. They didn't even understand why Jesus had to die. They did not understand the resurrection. They were joyful about it. They were amazed. They were equally terrified 
what is going on here? How could this happen? Uh, But they didn't understand it until Jesus took the time to pull his disciples aside and say, this is what it means. This is what the Old Testament said. This is being fulfilled in me. We rarely understand what God is up to in the moment that he's doing it. And if someone tells you that, oh, they understand, mm, red flag, red flag. Must have been hard for Jesus. Um, so much of what he says, and he does, he, people don't understand. There's a little bit of a loneliness in that. Um, how would you like it, Vince, if people just came up to you after your years of ministry here and, and they said, you know, Vince, I don't understand anything you say. <laughs> I actually had someone sit down with me a few years before I retired and they were leaving our church and they said, you know, I just don't understand or get anything out of your sermons. Um, which I appreciated their honesty. It was actually good that I'd rather have them come and say that to me. Um, I, I did ask them if that was all my fault. Um, but uh, it, it was, to me, that was annoying. Uh, for Jesus, I think these situations are actually part of his suffering. It's part of his being all alone in his understanding of what's going on. Not just alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, but alone in his understanding of his mission and his purpose. And no one else really got that. And that took great patience on Jesus' part. And it was part of the resoluteness that took him to the cross and to the tomb. But here's the thing. He knew that he was teaching spiritual children who would grow as truth and time matured them. He was teaching spiritual children. I think of the parents that are here or parents who are about to be parents um, as you raise your children. You know, you often teach them things you know that they're only going to understand later. You give them chores. They complain. Uh, you, you help, they help you with the house cleaning or the yard work. They don't necessarily want to do that. But they will understand at some point the value of work and the energy that's put into that and learning responsibility that a family is its own economy. Or maybe your teens don't understand, why do we have to sit around and have a meal at home? Kids went off to college, and that was a long time ago, 2003, 2007, 2009. And they come home, and they, they would say that they have all these friends, and they had no family life. And they, Katie couldn't really wait to get home. Amy couldn't wait to get home and, and just be around the table and have an opportunity to talk. Nowadays... And I think it's always been that way. You know, your kids get into their teen years. They're like, this is boring. I have homework to do, which is code for I want to look at Facebook or play that video game. Uh, And only later do they understand that mealtime and conversation is a valuable thing to be enjoyed and that there's much to be learned and gained from just being around the table. Whether you have devotions that night or not, there's still value in being together. See, it wasn't just the disciples that didn't understand what was happening. It's us. We often 
don't understand what he's doing in our lives, in the present. And that may be you this morning. Why did I lose the one that I love so much? Why did so-and-so break my heart? Why am I sick with this disease? Why do I have this physical or intellectual disability? Why did I lose my job? Why, why are all my jobs so frustrating? What's going on in this world we live in and the tumult that is all around us? Here's a word of comfort. I think part of what God is saying to us that underlies this passage is that you may not know now, you may not understand now what I'm doing to you, with you, or through you, But sometime later, perhaps only in part, you will. That may only happen in heaven, in part, but you will. And so he says to us, trust me. Trust me. Walk by faith. Someday you will see more of the tapestry of my will and my purposes in your lives. We really do only know in part, which is to say, that it takes faith not only to come to Jesus and believe, but it takes faith to follow Jesus every single day. So you think, well, okay, that's your sermon. That was my introduction. But it's something It's really more applicable to our lives, and I don't have, I'm not going to deal with that as much in the text we're in today. Today we're looking at the three voices of Palm Sunday, which occur in the midst of all, sort of draped in that misunderstanding that we just described. And the first voice, if you're taking notes, uh, the first voice is the voice of the crowd and what they shout. There's actually two crowds that come together to form one huge crowd on Palm Sunday. We're told that the one crowd in chapter 11, verse 55, has already been gathered in Jerusalem. They're already there for the feast. The the city's busting at the seams as everybody has come to celebrate uh, the feast of Passover. And then there's this other crowd that's in Bethany uh, that gathered because of the miracle of Jesus raising him from the dead. That's in in chapter 12, uh, verse 9. But as this unfolds before us, these crowds converge. It says in in verse 13 that the next day they come for the feast. Uh, They heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him. They went out from the city to meet him because they were wondering back at the end of chapter 11. They're like, has anybody seen Jesus yet? He hasn't showed up for the feast. And then they hear about Lazarus' resurrection and so they come streaming out of the city because they hear that his, his approach is imminent. And then there's the crowd that's already following Jesus because of the miracle that has occurred. And they welcome Jesus in a way that in many ways is culturally familiar to them. Uh, it's the same manner that they welcomed other deliverers. In 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus repelled an, ev- an invasion cleansed the temple of idols, and he was welcomed with palms as he rode on this huge uh, horse 
uh, military bearing. And he's hailed as this warrior deliverer of the Jewish nation. The palms stood for celebration. They stood for victory of their leader. Jesus doesn't come as a warrior in victory riding on a horse. He comes not like a Roman general doing a victory lap in in Rome after winning a battle as he rides in his horse and chariot. No, Jesus comes riding on a donkey, a sign of humility, a sign of peace, Um, a donkey that really had not been ridden on before, different kind of king that's being welcomed by the crowd. Instead of landing on Air Force One and flying into Jerusalem, he just comes in on some cheap airline and coach. Instead of getting into his, the black SUVs and riding through uh, from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, he just, he's in a 98 Subaru. You know, it's, just a, it's a different kind of feel than anybody would say. I said 98 Subaru because I used to have one. So... The voices, the the loud noises of the crowd and the words they say serve as a sign that Jesus of Nazareth, you must be the true king. You're the one who's going to bring real deliverance. That's why they shout Hosanna. It, It means save Jesus, save us, bring salvation to us, your people. Bring us real freedom. Bring us another exodus, a deliverance from our oppressors. Now remember, in the moment they're crying this out, they don't really know what they're truly asking for. There's probably 25 views within that crowd of what they really want out of this Jesus who's coming into Jerusalem. But we know that it fulfills the scriptures. It fulfills Psalm 118. Uh, which talks about the stone the builders rejected becoming the capstone. And, and the Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. And in verse 25 of Psalm 118, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. Excuse me, the Lord is God. He's made his light shine on us. And with bows in hand, join in the festival festival procession as it goes up to the altar. But especially in John's gospel, it fulfills. And and John says this. This is John speaking. It says, um, uh, Jesus found the young donkey and he sat upon it. And this is, again, John says, as it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Did the crowds understand those words or the kind of king that he would be? No. Did they know the kind of deliverance he was about to accomplish? No. Did they see him through the, lo- the lens of their own expectations? Absolutely. But did Jesus refuse their praise? No. No, he didn't. No. 
He let them let it all out. He let them say it because the words were true. And the words were written about him. And he knew that. They needed to be said. This voice, those words, is a sign that the king has come. The king of Israel. The son of David that's been looked forward to for centuries. He is here right now. And the saying of these words is the sign of the truth of that, of who he is as the king. This may be the only public demonstration of praise and honor that Jesus allows for himself in his ministry. You know how the Gospels read if you've read them. Jesus is often saying, you know, don't, don't go telling people about all this. He's not trying to attract crowds. It's inev- inevitable that he does. But he's always saying, no, don't, don't tell them who I am or, or don't, don't tell them about this. In fact, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, he's just fed the 5,000. And we read in verse 6, verse 16 of that chapter that they tried to take Jesus and to make him king by force. And what did he do? He fled. He fled into the wilderness and prayed. And only after that does he go and he walks out onto the water and meets with his disciples in their boat. But now is the time for this to be done. Jesus doesn't shy away from this moment. Because the voices of the crowd are a sign that he is indeed the king himself. Now, if it's true that it's not necessary to understand all the actions of God in the moment that he is acting, think about this. Think about your own worship. Did you realize that Jesus accepts our praises and our confessions, our thanksgiving, even though we know so little and we still understand so little. Do we really get all that Jesus has done for us? We try. Do we really understand the Father's patience and what he puts up with in my life, in your life? Do we really understand how deep his love is for us? Do we really understand how costly his forgiveness was? Do we really understand what he left to come down here in this broken, uh, bent world in which we live? Do we really understand how disobedient and rebellious and wicked our own hearts can be? But he accepts our praises. He does. To him, all glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. Uh, One of the verses, thou didst accept their praises, accept the prayers we bring. That's the voice of the crowd. The second voice here is the voice of the nations. The voice of the nations, uh, I'll refer you to verse 20, of John 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who 
went to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John is the only gospel writer who mentions this event. Right as Jesus is on the cusp of accomplishing salvation, of willingly giving himself up to the authorities when they come to arrest him, um, he's the only one who mentions that there are these Greeks who are kind of knocking on the door like, we want to see Jesus. Can we please see Jesus? I used to have garage sales when I first moved to Ephrata. Do they have garage sales in York County, Chris? I mean, there are times in Ephrata where, like, everybody's doing garage sales. I don't know if there's as many because everybody does Facebook Marketplace or something like that. Um, but I was... Our neighborhood had one, so I was like, oh, yeah, cool. And that's sort of the entrepreneurial side of me. I kind of liked out there being out there wheeling and dealing. Linda hated it, you know. She'd make the coffee and kind of hide around. My daughter was out there with me. You know, she loved it, and and, uh, so it it was a good time. But the first garage sale I ever had, you know, it starts at 7. And I went into my garage at quarter to 6, and I opened the garage door because I want to start pulling stuff. You, you don't have a garage sale in your garage, by the way. It's the driveway sale. <laughs> so I'm pulling everything out. And before I even start to do it, three old order Mennonite women rush into my garage. And they start going through all my stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on here? You know, and they're like, is the lawnmower for sale? You know, and have, is the snowblower for sale? Or it's like, that's not even for sale. You know, and I finally just had to say, could you please step outside for just a moment while I bring everything out? <laughs> they were opening boxes and pulling stuff out. They just, they just couldn't wait. They were bursting in before it could happen. I guess sort of Black Friday, the way it used to be uh, before COVID and the Internet. Um, people would line up, you know, the night before for the 6 o'clock in the morning opening. I kind of think that's what's happening here. I think it's part of John's point of putting this here. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. But guess who's coming to Jesus? The nations. The nations. John doesn't end by saying, go ye ye into all the world. He has this little snippet where the world is coming to him. And he hasn't even accomplished what he needs to accomplish here on this earth. I think the, the Greek's request here is, is like that first greenish hint of leaves on the tree this spring. Did, have you seen them out there? It's an early spring, it seems, but there's that hint. We always look at the effort of mountain, and, and uh, I used to be able to sit in my old office and look up at the mountain and and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, ah, oh, there's that hint of spring. And somehow, somehow, just like in a period of like one to three days, it goes from just this hint to like, boom, all the leaves are out, and you can't see the forest floor anymore. We're told in Isaiah 60, nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The whole point of the covenant with Abraham 
is that the nations of the earth would be blessed through the one nation that God would create out of Abraham. And while Israel failed in many ways to be a blessing to the nations, Jesus did not. The nations are coming to him. They're knocking at the door. Pentecost is 50 days away. Calvary hasn't even happened, but the greenish hue of a brand new spring of new life is there on the hillside ready to burst forth once Jesus has died and arisen. And that's why he goes on to talk about this grain of wheat. You know, if it doesn't fall to the ground, it's just one seed. But if it dies, it goes to the ground and it dies, then what happens? You have many seeds. He's talking about the nations. We have no clue if Jesus ever met with the Greeks. Did he grant their request and come and meet with them? We're not told. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But we do know that their voice is a sign to him. It's a sign. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I love how the signs of Palm Sunday converge in Revelation chapter 7. In verse 9, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And you know what they cried out? Hosanna. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The voice of the crowds, which represents the coming of the king, and and then there's this voice of the Greeks, the voice of the nations, and and exposes the mission of the king. But that's what his ministry is all about. That's what your ministry is all about. That's part of what... Vincent Robin, we're doing over in South Africa, is ministering to those who are ministering to other nations. Um, You're a part of that as a church. Final voice we find in this passage is the voice of the Father. Verse 27, uh, I'll read again. John, John 12, 27. It kind of makes a turn here from the hour has come, and it's almost in, as Jesus realizes that the hour is imminent, he says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that's when this voice from heaven comes to Jesus. The other people hear it as thunder, or they hear, it's like, wait, maybe an angel was speaking. But the voice from heaven, the Father, says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And Jesus says, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. 
John doesn't have a Garden of Gethsemane moment in his gospel. The other three do. It's almost as though when John is writing it, and his is written much later than the other three gospels, um, John's saying, well, that, they covered that already. <laughs> so he, he has, obviously, he, his gospel is completely different. Chapter 12 through the end is just the last week of his ministry. Half of his, have, half of his book, almost, is devoted to that. And almost here, it, it, we, we find this pre-Gethsemane lament, and now my heart is troubled. And he expresses the anguish. The hour has come, and now my heart is troubled. He knows what he has to do. The cross, the lifting up of the Son of Man is very, very near, and it's beginning to weigh upon him. He told his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust also in me. But right now, his heart's troubled. He's feeling the weight. And it becomes a wrestling match. And this is expressed just in this little snippet. Should I say, Father, save me? Um, part of him says, yes. Let, remember the garden. Let this cup pass for me if it's possible. But Jesus knows that he's on earth for a mission, and his primary goal is the Father's glory, to provide the Son that is needed as a right substitute for our sins. He knows that is his mission. He knows that that is his desire. And he comes to that tree on Calvary, as another kind of Adam than we're used to seeing. A new Adam, Adam 2.0, who doesn't go his own way, right? follow his own words, his own passions, his own desires. Jesus' consuming passion is to glorify his Father. And so he says in verse 27, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. And it's in that moment that the third voice comes, the voice from the Father. And he says, he says to the Son, you have been bringing glory to my name from the very beginning. You've done it so well. And then he says, oh, says, and, and now, now, he says, you will glorify it again as you are lifted up on that tree, showing my love, but not just showing love, but bringing real forgiveness, a substitute who pays the penalty for our sins. Jesus says in verse 30, this voice is for you people. It is a sign that the time has come for the real deal, the real purpose. The time has come to drive the prince of this world, the false prince, out. A battle of a completely different kind is about to begin. And it's not one that's fought with strength or might or sophisticated weaponry. It's a battle fought in Jesus' demonstration of weakness, 
by willingly submitting himself to the agony of the tree and the curse of the tree, hanging on that tree, allowing death to overcome him, so he in turn could overcome death for you and for me. That happens ultimately, we know, in weakness, and then the power of the Father to raise his son from the dead. So there's three voices. The voice of the crowd who shout their praise, the coming of the king. This really is him. There's the voice of the nations who ask for Jesus. And, and it reveals that the mission of this true king is in regards to the nations, and then there's the voice of the Father and his affirmation of the Son, which speaks to the victory of this king that is about to be won as he brings glory to his Father. Maybe the greatest sign of all, not one that we really covered this morning, but Jesus mentions it in verse 32. He says, but when I am lifted up from the earth... I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So the noise of those nails and the spikes driven into his hands, the the agony of his body as it is lifted up high enough so that he can no longer really bring air into his lungs as he suffocates and as he dies, That noise of a jeering crowd, the soldiers, the smug religious leaders, he saved others, but he can't save himself. In that moment of being lifted up, the noise of the crowd and those merciful words is found in this amazing sign that I will, through this of all things, draw all men to myself. These words from Isaiah 11.10, which... Paul quotes in Romans 15, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praise to him, all you peoples. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Let's pray together. Father, take uh, these words, your uh, exposition to us of some of the events of that Palm Sunday of those voices. Um, May we be a people who trust you in all the things we go through. May we be a thankful people as we seek to understand and apprehend the depths that you went to suffer for us. May we have a heart uh, for the nations as you did, as you went to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.